I think it was, uh, I don't remember how long ago exactly, um, I drove my car into a car wash. One of those, you know, one of those car washes where you, uh, you kind of drive up and then the wheel locks, you know, it grabs your wheel and then it just, you know, starts pulling you through and you put it in neutral and, uh, you know, you just sit there and you let the car wash do its thing. And it's kind of fun. It's almost like a, a little little taste of Disney World right there in your own hometown where you're going through and uh, all these things are slapping the windshield and you're looking around. And I think the last time I went through there, I just ate my lunch while I was going through there. It was kind of nice. But um, I read about that and it reminded me, or I, I remember that uh, experience and it reminded me of something I read about uh, recently. It's really... Uh, the self-driving cars is—it's probably going to happen. I mean, we've seen we've seen evidence of it already. I read about a, a news story where a uh, a guy was driving down the road and he looks over at the car next to him, and I forget which car it is—if it's a Tulsa or something like that—but the thing like drives itself. And the guy looked over at the guy next to him, and he was asleep going down the highway at 70 miles an hour and his car is just driving along and the driver is asleep. I'm not quite there yet in my comfort of uh, (laughs) automated cars. But it reminded me of an article that I read, I think it was about 20 years ago, back when automated cars was sort of like Buck Rogers in the 21st century. But uh, the... um, it's becoming more and more of a reality. And I remember this uh, USA Today article where the Department of Transportation literally set aside $200 million for research in this. And they tested uh, an, an automated highway system, which is what they called it. It basically would, their goal was to alleviate traffic jams in congested cities like San Diego by putting magnets under the highway every four feet. And what it would do is transfer signals between the vehicle and the main computer system. And so steering and braking and accelerating all would be controlled automatically. And you're just, you know, you're just riding through the car wash. You're just eating your lunch. And the driver and driver control would be resumed when you exited the highway. So this technology really does exist. Uh, The problem uh, a guy named Mike Doble, who was Buick's technology manager at the time, Doble said this. He said, the only thing we can't do yet is to get people comfortable to trust the system. It's not a technology issue. Would you drive closely spaced at high speeds through San Diego? I thought that was a great uh, question because it, it's the problem not only with automated traffic, but it's our problem with God. It's not a technology issue. God's got the technology. Uh, He's got all the knowledge. He's got all the intellect. And in a sense, we have the intellectual capacity to know that God is all-powerful. So the problem isn't uh, technology. The problem is we want our hands on the wheel. The issue is the traffic that we're in. It's the real-world tension that makes us so impatient that makes us want to drive the car instead of trusting that unseen force that's pulling us along. And also, there's something else that happens. What do you do when you're in a hurry? I mean, think about the traffic the traffic uh, solution. 
Let's say you're late for work and you get on this automated highway. That thing ain't going fast enough. It's taking you along at the speed that it wants to take you along. It doesn't allow you to zip in and out of traffic and to, to get to wherever you're trying to get to. So the automated highway doesn't take into account that we're running late. You'd get there only as fast as it allows you. And again, this is our problem with God. We always want to go faster than God is steering our life. He drives our lives so much slower than we prefer. Uh, You know, God's a great God as long as He is timely. But when He is too slow in giving us what we need or what we think we need or what He's promised to give, then we think, you know what, it's time to exit. It's time to exit this highway and get this car back under control. Well, enough of the metaphor. Let's get into the text and look at Genesis chapter 16. Genesis 16. Remember we saw last time that Abram, Abraham is not yet named Abraham. I keep calling him that because that's what we know him as, Sarah as well. But their names at this point are still Abram and Sarai. Abram and Sarai. God had promised Abram land, descendants, and blessing. Back in Genesis 12, when we started our uh, series here on Abraham, we saw that God promised Abraham three things. Land, the promised land, descendants, which would be the nation Israel, and blessing. That is, through Abraham's lineage, all the world would be blessed. And of course, we know that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So, Abraham, we saw last time, tried to figure God out. He, he got a promised Abraham descendants, and Abraham says, you know what, uh, that descendant thing hasn't happened yet, and so my heir is going to be Eliezer, my, my servant. And God says, no, it's not. It's going to be someone from your own body. So they get it. Abraham and Sarah, they've got it all figured out now. It's gonna, Abraham is going to be the father. But notice Genesis 16, verse 1, the tension continues beyond Abram to Sarai. Verse 1 says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. Now Sarai was very aware of God's promise to Abram for a son, I mean, Abram had made her aware of the the covenant that God made with with Abraham. And she was also aware of her own barrenness. It's been about 10 years now since chapter 12, when Abraham and Sarah came to Canaan for the very first time. At that time, Abram was 75, Sarah was 65. And so they they weren't spring chickens when they started out. And now you add 10 more birthday cakes to the deal, And they are 85 and 75 now. So by all natural logic, the problem, the the promise is not going to come through Sarah. And the tension eventually proves to be too much for for, uh, Sarah. It seems the only thing worse than a barren land was a barren womb. Look at verse 2. This is her solution. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please, go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children through her. 
And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, and and after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. What in the world is this talking about? We read this and we think this sounds like something, you know, out of the movie Deliverance or something. This is this is not something that goes along with our culture. And it's because it isn't our culture, but it definitely was theirs. And let, let me explain. Look at uh, look at this. Let me share this uh, screen here with you, and you can see. Can you see this uh, little tablet here? John McDonald, give me a nod if you can. Yes, all right, thumbs up. I, I can't ever see it on my screen, so I've always got to make sure that it's working. This is called a uh, the the Nuzi tablet. It's one of many uh, tablets that were discovered at a place called Nuzi, N-U-Z-I. But if you ever heard of the Nuzi tablets, Nuzi tablets are are these archaeological finds that gave us insight into the customs and culture of that time. And uh, this particular one, I, I believe, uh, is referring to adoption. But they also had uh, a Nuzi tablet that was discovered that said basically if the wife uh, has children, the husband can't marry again. But if the husband and wife don't have any kids, then the wife can provide a concubine. Or the wife can basically provide another wife, kind of a surrogate wife. And then the wife would have the legal rights to the child. And just like Abram, you remember last time from, from the culture, uh, Abram thought that, well, my heir must be my servant. I mean, my, my servant must be my heir, Eliezer. The same thing is true here. Sarah thinks my servant is going to want be the one who provides the heir. So this, is, this was their culture. And it's, it's a little tough, I think, for us to, I don't know, wrap our arms around this because we can clearly see the immorality in it. It goes against Scripture. But remember, there was no Scripture at this time. There was just oral tradition. There was no Bible yet for Abraham to look at. It was just Abraham and God and their culture. So, uh, Abraham does what she says. They figure that they've waited on God for 10 years. Perhaps they heard him wrong. Perhaps this is the way that God wants to provide. You know, when you're desperate and you really want something and you're sick of waiting on God, you can begin to think God's will into a lot of different things. Have you noticed that in your own life? Well, maybe this is the will of God. Maybe it is God's will that I, you know, do whatever. And you begin to rationalize instead instead of continue to wait. Notice what Sarah said there in verse 2. Interesting. She says, The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. This is God's fault. God made you a promise, Abram, and then he prevents me from bearing children. You can almost hear the desperation in Sarah's voice. She says, Perhaps I shall obtain through her. I don't know if you see in your margin there, but look in your margin there at verse 2. It says, um, perhaps I shall be built from her. 
That's what the New American Standard has in the, in the margin. Sarah sees her whole future wrapped up in Abraham's heir, and she realizes that she, or she believes at this point, she is not part of the program. And so she figures out, well, we're going to help God out. This custom is here. We've got this Egyptian maid. Uh, problem solved. Um, here's a principle. Uh, we've got three principles that we'll look at here throughout this text today. And here's the first one. And it's obvious, but it just helps to say it. And here it is. The world will always offer a quick, a promised quick and easy solution to waiting on God. Uh, perhaps I might even phrase it a, an easy alternative to waiting on God rather than solution because it doesn't solve anything. The world will always offer a promised, quick, and easy alternative to waiting on God. You know, and just because it's legal doesn't mean it's right. We can change laws all day long. I remember one politician whose name I promise you you would know if I were to say it. He said something one time that was like people were questioning what he did because he it was like immoral or he was making some judgment. And he said, uh, you know, it's not only wrong, it's illegal. And I heard that and thought, friend, you got that backwards. <laughs> wrong comes at the end of the deal. Uh, illegal is not the bottom line of what makes it okay or not okay. But it seems like that's the way it is today. When God is sort of in the back seat and we're the one driving the car, if we can just get the laws to say it's okay, well, then it's okay. The Supreme Court can, can make their determination on, uh, on laws and morality and long-standing traditions that go back to the days of biblical days. That doesn't make it right. Um, Anyway, we could we could get off into a sidebar there real quick and get mired down into the into the weeds. But uh, enough to say that uh, just because the world offers a quick solution doesn't make it tr- make it true, doesn't make it right. When God is too slow, what do we do? We start down our list of perhaps, like Sarah says, perhaps I shall obtain through her. Perhaps this. Perhaps this is the way, because we need to get things moving. Uh, God is not a God that just sits around, right? He's a, God, he's a God of action. He's a God of progress. He's a God of growth. He's a God of expansion. And so uh, when following God's will requires us to wait on Him, then all of a sudden we're looking for all the perhaps that might allow us to move forward in our walk, with, uh, in our relationship with God, and really and just to get what we want. So Sarah points to Hagar, her Egyptian maid. Notice the text says that, so that we don't miss where they got her. Now, why were they in Egypt? They were in Egypt, remember, previously, because in Genesis 12, during a famine, uh, Abraham said, you know what, we need to get out of this land, the land that God told me to come to, and go to Egypt, because, hey, they got the Nile River, plenty of water, no problem. But except when they get there, Abraham compromises. Remember that story? And he tells Sarah, hey, say that you're my sister. And so that whole uh, debacle went on down in Egypt. And as a result, they left by Pharaoh giving them gifts. And one of the gifts were servants. And one of the servants 
was Hagar. If they hadn't gone to Egypt, they wouldn't have this Egyptian servant, and perhaps they wouldn't have this uh, particular temptation. One problem, one bad decision often leads to the temptation to make others. So what's the result of this result resulting to uh, culture? Look at verse 4. The result is another problem. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. Wow. Interesting how God's now part of the program. He's back in the program. May the Lord judge between you and me. I like how Roy Orban says, Roy Orban says, the problem with living in the fast lane is you get to the toll booth quicker. That's a nice metaphor, isn't it? You remember the old adage, act in haste, repent in leisure? I think it also goes merry in haste, but you can make it broader. Act in haste, repent in leisure. In other words, the world's quick solution is a lie because its effects, it, it may promise to be a quick and easy solution, but the, but the truth is it isn't quick and it isn't easy. It is long and it is complicated, the results. When we try to help God out when he is too slow, it simply complicates the matter. Sarah had planned on Hagar getting pregnant. That was, the, that was part of the deal. What she didn't plan on was Hagar rubbing it in. When the plan backfired, now Sarah is blaming Abraham for doing exactly what she suggested. Now, we won't talk about that anymore, husbands. Uh, I'm sure that's never happened to you. But uh, look what Abraham says in verse 6. Abraham said to Sarah, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarah treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. What was Abraham saying here in verse 6? He's basically demoting Hagar from the concubine-slash-wife status back to the status of Sarah's servant. She's no longer on the same level now as Sarah. You know, as often happens in our lives, uh, it happened right here in Genesis. Trying to solve our problem with a compromise or a bad decision just created another problem for them. And it sets up this vicious cycle that's really hard to break. Um, And notice that the tension wasn't resolved. Sarah was still barren, and now Hagar, the one with the baby, has left. So they're right back where they started with. But notice in verse 7, just because God seems to be slow doesn't mean he isn't involved. I love this. Look at verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her, meaning Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Interesting, the, the angel of the Lord, pretty, 
pretty usually in the in the Old Testament when uh, it's the angel, definite, uh, not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord. It is a physical manifestation of the Lord. Uh, some theologians believe it's the pre-incarnate Christ because he is the only one, the only member of the Trinity who has ever manifested himself physically. And so some believe that the angel of the Lord is, uh, is the pre-incarnate Christ. Maybe. But definitely this angel of the Lord represents God. And notice the, Lord, the angel of the Lord asked two questions. Where have you come from? Where are you going? And she only answered the first. I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. She didn't say where she's going, but because the text tells us that she's on the way to Shur, we know where she's going, and, but we don't know where Shur is. So let me, let me show you this uh, map once again, and we'll get a little bit more insight that's wonderfully helpful. So here is the, uh, the land of Canaan, of course, is up here in this, this area. And I don't know if I can, yeah, I can draw a little bit. But you can see Canaan's up in here. So this is Israel. And where they were living was Beersheba, which is right here. Now, the text says that she was on the way to Shur. Uh, the way to Shur is not just a direction. It is a road. So this road from Beersheba, coming down this way, is an actual road. And notice what direction it's going. It's going back to Egypt. Where was Hagar going? She was going home. She was running back to Egypt. So we know exactly where she was headed. And in fact, the wilderness in which the angel of the Lord found her is probably uh, what you're seeing here. This, uh, this looks like it's probably late fall or uh, early spring before the, the green was happening. I don't know if the text tells us at what time of year this particular incident occurred, but pretty much any time you head down into this area of the Negev, it, um, it's pretty bleak. This is the area that she's traveling through, and the text tells us that the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. She was headed back to Egypt. Now, there's a pattern that I observe here in the text, and um, I think it's helpful for us to identify it. If we look at the big picture so far of everything we've seen from back to Genesis 12, when there was a famine in the land, Abram ran to Egypt. When there was a barren land, Abram ran to Egypt. When Sarah had a barren womb, Sarah goes to Egypt. In a sense, she went to the Egyptian maid. When Hagar was being mistreated, Hagar ran to Egypt. There is a, there is a pattern of when things are difficult, all of a sudden, there is an easy detour to get off this highway and to head to Egypt. The world always offers a solution. You know, as creatures of habit, we tend to take the same roads, whether back, you know, when we actually used to get out and do stuff, 
We would go the same road to work, the same road to church, the same road to our favorite restaurants, to the grocery store. In fact, it's so familiar and ingrained in a pattern in our minds, we do it without even thinking about it. We just get in the car and go. Often we just arrive and realize, oh, we've shown up. It's so second nature to us. It's not only true in driving, it's true in living. We tend to go the same route. When we're stressed, we run to the same a stress reliever, whether it's good or bad, often. We tend to take the same routes that get us the immediate results. And this road to Shur, this highway to Egypt, seemed to be what Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, uh, the road that they were taking as well. The problem is the road to Shur never solves anything. You ever notice in each of those three incidents, uh, it didn't solve anything for them. They, had the, they found themselves right back where they started. You think about that in relationship to our spiritual lives, and here's the second principle. Uh, the second principle is this. Running from God's will only finds us running in circles. He brings us back where we started. I don't know if you've discovered that in your life, but I sure have. When when. I try to run away, and when we run away from God's problems, from God's will, uh, when we run away from God's will, and as we determine that it's a problem, we find ourselves right back where we started, having to trust God all over again. Think of a few other biblical examples in the Scripture. Moses murdered and ran out of Egypt. God sent him right back. Elijah fearfully ran from Galilee. Remember when Jezebel was trying to get him? What happened? God sent him back. Uh, Onesimus ran away from Colossae and his master Philemon. What happened? God sent him back. Paul sent him back. And then, of course, Hagar is mistreated by Sarah, and God sends her back. <clears throat> and uh, I don't know if you've ever been in Hagar's situation, like in, uh, let's just say, in a work environment, maybe a church environment, but where the one in authority uh, is is unjust and when the one in authority is mistreating those under him or her it's a challenge to do what the Lord said and that is to submit to their authority that's a real challenge especially in this day and age when we can basically just hit the road anytime we want Hagar didn't have that um, and to her credit she goes back she trusts the Lord, and she returns to a situation that she knows is unjust, and a situation where she's having to trust God rather than her own wits or wisdom. But God's not done with Hagar. Notice he says some other things to her, and in doing so, gives us some encouragement for those situations that we find ourselves in that are similar to Hagar. Look at verse 10. We're told, first of all, God hears us. It says, the angel of the Lord, uh, moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they shall be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, behold, you are with child and you shall bear son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction and he will be a wild donkey of a man. 
His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all his brothers. You could also translate it, uh, he will live in conflict with his brothers. And that's really what has happened throughout history, because the descendants of Ishmael are the Arabs. And you think about the ultimate uh, descendant of Abraham is going to be Isaac, the father of the Hebrew nation or the Jews. Think about the conflict that that the Arabs and the Jews still have today. And it all goes back to this these poor decisions that were made here back in Genesis when, when this uh, elderly couple thought, you know what, let's just compromise and try to figure this out rather than trust God. Ishmael means, Ishmael's name means God hears. Particularly in context, God hears when we pray about our affliction. Ishmael's name was meant that, was, was given that because, we're told, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Verse 11, God hears. When we pray in a context of affliction, God hears. We are not crying out to a God who is without compassion and without attention in our struggles. Not only does God hear, but look at verse 13. God sees. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees, and said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Verse 14, Therefore the well was called Be'er Lachai Royi. Behold, it is between Kedesh and Bered. Notice verse 13 at the end, Have I remained alive after seeing him? In other words, this was God. Hagar understood that she saw God. And so she's saying, wow, I've seen God and I'm still alive. She understands that she has seen the Lord. But it's not, what, what's not, the significant part is not that she's seen the Lord, but that God has seen her. She says, you are the God who sees. The, the Hebrew is El Royi, a God who sees. And it's not just a God who sees, but a God who sees me. You see what she said there? Uh, you are a God who sees. Bier lachai royi. I, I kind of wish that had been translated rather than just, uh, uh, you know, transliterated here the name of the, of the well. But that Hebrew name for the well, Bier lachai royi, means the, the, the well of the living one who sees me. Who sees me. It's personal. It's not just that God sees, but God sees me. And God sees you. Hagar's obedient return to a miserable and tough situation refers, uh, reveals her faith in a God who is sovereign, a God who met her on the run. So, the difficult will of God, thankfully, also includes the presence of God and the ear of God. God hears, God sees, God is very present with us in our trials and in our affliction. And those names, God hears, God sees, the, the name of Ishmael, the name of the well, it's not just you know, a clever, clever way to, to name things. The goal of this was to trigger a reminder. Every time they would call out Ishmael's name, and as a young boy growing up, you'd call his name a lot, it would be a reminder that God hasn't forgotten you. Look at verse 15. 
So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Did you notice it was Abram who named him? That means that Hagar had to have shared with Abraham her experience in the wilderness. The names given here are are a promise. God hears. It's a promise to comfort the afflicted. The uh, the afflicted made Hagar, and also a, sort of a, a a mild rebuke to Abraham and Sarah. Uh, God hears. God sees. He hasn't forgotten the promise that he's made to you, Abraham and Sarah. You don't need to go to Egypt. You don't need to travel the way to Shur. You don't need to try to figure all this out. I've got it. I've got it handled. I've got it taken care of. So here's the final principle. Trust that he who hears your prayers and sees your needs will provide his best in his time. Trust that he who hears your prayers and sees your needs will provide his best in his time. You know, it's funny how Abraham never, it never really seemed to cross Abraham's mind to, uh, to ask God what he thought of Sarah's plan. The name Ishmael would be a constant reminder every time Sarah and Abraham called his name. God hears, it's time for dinner. God hears, get dressed for, to go out and play. Every time they'd say it, God hears. They would say God hears multiple times a day to be reminded. Don't give up. Don't exit the highway. Stay the course. Trust me because God hears. Of course, the text today isn't just about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. It's about us. They gave God 10 years and then decided, you know what? It's time we take the wheel. How long are you willing to give God for whatever it is you're waiting on Him for right now? You know, we tend to draw lines in the sand. Um, Sometimes they come up on us. Our emotions want to draw that line for us and and in a sense sort of say, you know what, today's the day. Uh, I've waited long enough. And whatever the world's quick solution is, it's right there. It promises immediate uh, satisfaction and immediate solution. But haven't we learned that it never goes that way? It never goes well. Well, these principles, once again, I'll just repeat them. The first one was, the world will always offer a promised, quick, and easy alternative to waiting on God. Second, running from God's will only finds us running in circles. He brings us back to where we started. And then finally, trust that he who hears your prayers and sees your needs will provide his best in his time. So the text gives us this challenge today. Will we trust a God who hears us? Will we believe that God truly sees us in, in, in such a way that we will trust him to provide for us when he sees that the time is best to do so? Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for the time in the Scriptures today because you give us insight into things that we might not otherwise think about and great reminders 
of things we need to think about. Thank you for this challenge that Abraham, Abraham and Sarah and Hagar faced because it gives us encouragement in our own world where we are weary of the constant waiting and the constant um, asking for you to intercede and to get involved and to do something as opposed to our just continually waiting on you uh, while, while life passes us by. We pray for your mercy on those who uh, need comfort today, especially reminding us today that you hear. You are a God who hears. You hear us right now as we pray. You hear us in the silence of our own hearts as the specifics of each of our situations come before you. You hear us and you see us. You see our affliction. You are well acquainted with the issues that we are struggling with. And you're well acquainted with the issues below that, the motives and the reasons and all behind it. We pray that you would give us the courage through this text today to just continue to trust you, to keep our hands off the wheel, and to allow you to steer, to you to accelerate, you to brake, you to be the one who is the navigator and the guide. And we will trust that one day, by your grace, we will show up at that destination that you are leading us to. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.